listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We are currently in the season of Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up into Christmas, and historically, Advent is a time when Christians focus our hearts and our minds, our attention on Jesus, and not just Jesus himself, but who he is as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we focus our our hearts and attentions on this miracle, this fact, this historical event of what we call the incarnation, which is when God took on human flesh and came to us in Jesus in order to save us and rescue us. The word Advent, by the way, means arrival. And so at this time, we're celebrating the coming of Jesus into the world. But we're also, as we do that, we're also looking forward to the promise that Jesus gave us that one day he would come again. So today, kind of Christmas Sunday, if you will, and uh, it's um, our last Sunday before Christmas, we're going to be looking in our Advent series at Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at a prophecy which was given by Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. So Zechariah, and it begins in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. I'll read the text and then we'll pray. And his father, that's John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, that oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we come to it, Lord, help us to come with Uh, appropriately open hearts, Lord, appropriately open minds, that we would hear your word, that we would understand it and comprehend it, and Lord, that we might apply it to our lives, that we would go from this place, that we would be changed and transformed by it, and that would continue from this day as we go. So Lord, we come to you with expectant hearts, thankful for your revealed will and your message to us in your word, and with hearts that desire to hear it and receive it and put it into practice. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The title of today's message is A Thrill of Hope. And I don't know if you've noticed, but all of our messages in this Advent season are taken from, you know, lines of great Christmas hymns. And this one comes from the Christmas hymn or song, O Holy Night, this phrase, A Thrill of Hope. You know, it's been said that you can live for a couple of weeks without food. You can live for a couple of days without water. You can live for a couple of minutes without oxygen. But you can't live for a single second without hope. 
In our text this morning, what we see is a joyful declaration made by a man named Zechariah. Zechariah, of course, the father of John the Baptist. And it was on the occasion of his son's birth that Zechariah gives this joyful declaration that we just read. Now, for us, just a few years ago, we had a Christmas baby. You know, we had a a few years ago a baby who was born right before Christmas, our youngest child. We just celebrated her birthday this past week. And, you know, part of the joy of having a child is the hope that comes along with that new life. It's the anticipation of what the future will hold, of moments shared together, of things that they will experience and learn and accomplish in their lives. So there's a sense of hope that is what fuels the joy that comes with having a child. In other words, you could put it this way. Joy is directly related to hope. Joy is directly related to hope. Hope, in other words, is a prerequisite for joy. You can't have joy unless you have hope. And what is hope? Well, hope can be defined as the assurance of coming good. The assurance of coming good. Every child is special, of course, but for Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, this child was extra special. Because for many years, they had waited, they had prayed, they had asked, they had tried to have a baby, but they were never able to. You know, I remember friends of mine in Hungary, they told me, you know, we prayed for a baby for nine years, and then we learned that that that's not how you get a baby only, right? You have to do other things as well. But they were doing all of it, right? They were praying and trying. They were doing everything they could to have a baby. And you can imagine the sense of frustration that came with every passing month and every passing year as they watched their friends uh, get pregnant and have babies and have kids. And they wondered, when will it be our turn? But their turn never came. And they watched their friends' kids grow up and go to school and get jobs. And there they were, still waiting, still praying, but to no avail. And we read in the earlier part of Luke chapter 1, at the beginning of the chapter, it says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. In those days, to be childless was considered a curse. It was a, there was a stigma about it, to be childless. It was even considered, you know, by people to be a punishment from God, that you must have done something for which you are now being punished by God. Some, you must have some skeleton in the closet, some secret sin, and that's the reason why you're not having a baby, because everybody knows that babies are a blessing, therefore to not be able to have one is a curse. And so here's Elizabeth, and realize this, she not only has to deal with her own sadness and grief over the fact that she can't have a child, she also has to deal with the fact that people are talking about her and looking at her and gossiping about her and judging her behind her back all the time because she's barren. The other thing we learn is that Zechariah was a priest. Now it says there in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that one day, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. You see, there were a lot of priests in Israel, but there was only one temple. There's a whole tribe of priests, but there was only one temple. And so a priest could actually live their entire life and maybe get to do the temple service 
once or twice in their entire life. It was kind of a lottery. Your name had to come up when your group was allotted to do it. And so you could go your whole life and only do temple service maybe once or twice. And so this is a really big deal. Zacharias didn't often get to go into the temple even though he was a priest. And so he gets this duty. He's going to go in. He's going to light the incense at the hour of incense in the inner sanctuary, the holy place in the temple itself. And so Zechariah, that day comes, he enters the temple, and there in the sanctuary, in that sacred place, that special place, he takes the opportunity as he's in this, you know, special place that very few people ever get to enter into, and he says, I've got, I'm going to pray here in this place for the one thing that I want more than anything else in the world. I know it's a long shot, but I'm going to ask God to give me and my wife a child. He knew it was a long shot. He knew, and it actually seems like he didn't really think it would happen. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we pray, and we don't even expect it to happen, but we remember that it's not our prayers, but it's God who does things, right? And so he knew it's a long shot. He didn't expect it to happen, but something unexpected and surprising happens. An angel appears to him there in the temple, and he tells Zechariah that God has heard his prayer and that he and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And the angel tells him to name the child John, which means God has been gracious. And the angel says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Now, why is that? Why would other people rejoice at the birth of this child? And what does it mean that he will be great before the Lord? Well, the angel explained it. Look at what he says. He says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people for the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Why is that significant? Okay, in Zechariah's time, the Old Testament was complete. The Old Testament had been completed. In fact, it had been completed for 400 years. For 400 years, in the eyes of the Jewish people, God had been silent. It had been 400 years since the last prophet of Israel came, and the canon of the Old Testament was completed. For 400 years, God, so to say, hadn't spoken through a prophet. And and here they are now. 400 years has been going on. It's what they call the silent period. But the very last thing that God had said through the prophet Malachi in the very last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, I want to read it to you. It actually begins in Malachi chapter 3. But if you go to Matthew, you know, the first of the Gospels, then turn one or two pages to the left, you'll be right there. Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, the parting words of the Old Testament. Here's what they are. Malachi chapter 3 says this, Behold, I will send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God promised in his parting words at the end of the Old Testament, I'm going to send the Messiah, but before he comes, I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way. To prepare the way for who? To prepare the way, the Lord says, for me. To prepare the way for me. In other words, he says, the Lord whom you seek will come into his temple. Who is the Lord whom they seek? Well, the Lord whom they seek refers to God's promise throughout the ages, throughout the scriptures, that he himself would come to them. 
that he would come to his people and he would redeem them from sin and from the curse of sin, which is death. And we've seen in our studies over the past two weeks, this has been kind of our focus, about looking at the promises of God in the Old Testament all the way back to the book of Genesis when sin came into the world in the beginning of human history. As soon as sin and death came into the world, God made a promise, not just that he would send somebody, but that he himself would come to resolve the mess that we had made. And throughout the Old Testament, God continued to make this promise, and he would give more and more details about how it would happen and some clues so that when it happened, they would recognize that it was happening. And God promised that he himself would come to them as a human person. So for example, the text we read this morning for our call to worship was a prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Let me remind you of what it said. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now let's just stop right there. What do we have so far? A human child is born, right? Born, comes into this world, born of a woman. And it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, which is cool, right? That's good. Mighty God. Well, wait a second. So we're talking about a child who will also be the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. A human child will be born, yet this child will be none other than the eternal God, the everlasting father. See, God's final words at the end of the Old Testament are, the Lord whom you seek, the Messiah, the promised Savior, God coming into this world to save, he will come into his temple, but before he comes, there will be a messenger who will prepare the way before him. And how will this messenger do that? How will this messenger prepare the way? Malachi tells us that as well. In actually the very last two verses of the Old Testament. Check it out. Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. He says this. This messenger will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah the prophet. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. These are the exact words that the angel tells Zechariah to explain who his son will be and why it's a big deal. And how does Zechariah respond? Does he shout for joy? Does he collapse and, and on the ground and thank God? No. Zechariah actually responds by saying, I don't know. Are you sure? Like, uh, I don't think it's going to work. Have you seen my wife? I mean, she's, you know, she's not as young as she used to be. Let's say it that way, right? And I love how the angel responds. The angel is like offended, right? The angel is like bothered by this. He goes, am I sure? Like, am I sure? Do you even know who I am? Like, who are you talking to? He says, I am Gabriel. Like, who are you, right? Like, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Yeah, I think I'm sure, right? Like, God sent me here to tell you. So, yeah. And the angel's so upset with Zechariah, so annoyed that he says, you know what? I'm just going to shut your mouth for good until your son is born. You want to talk back to me? Well, now you're not going to talk for a while. So Zechariah comes out of the temple, and now he can't talk. He can't speak. And people are asking him what's happening, and he's doing sign language, and he's drawing pictures to explain. And, and pretty soon, people get what's happening. Elizabeth is pregnant. And the months pass by, and there's so much anticipation and excitement, as there always is with the, with the birth of a child. And while Elizabeth is expecting this baby, one day her cousin, Mary, comes over to visit. Mary lives up north in the region of Galilee. She comes for an extended visit while she's pregnant. Mary's also pregnant. And, and like Elizabeth, the circumstances of Mary's pregnancy were also very unique. And they were announced and explained with an angelic visitation. And during Mary's visit, 
Mary and Elizabeth are comparing stories and they realize that Elizabeth's child is going to be the forerunner and Mary's child is going to be the Messiah. And the whole time there's Zechariah right, sitting there like in his lounge chair, like listening and unable to talk. He's just got to be quiet and take it all in. And I, I imagine he probably was trying to like grunt and be like, you know, and try and say, interject and draw on his chalkboard and, and grunt and communicate. But finally, the day comes when Zachariah and Elizabeth's baby is born and they name him John, which means God is gracious. And for the first time in months, Zechariah gets his voice back. Can you imagine? For months, ever since he saw an angel in the temple, he hasn't been able to talk. And finally, he's able to talk. Zechariah speaks. He gets his voice back after months. What's he going to say? At the birth of his son, he gets his voice back. And here's what he says. And here's what's so interesting about it. First of all, Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? They've been waiting for this child and praying for this child for decades They've been looking forward to this, and he's finally here. And Zechariah gives a speech, finally gets his voice back. But his speech is kind of weird because it's about a different kid, right? It'd be like if you go to somebody's birthday party, and, and it's like a birthday party for a child, and then dad stands up to give a toast, and he gives a toast about how much he likes some other kid, right? Who's not, it's not his birthday. And you're like, well, that would be kind of weird, right? So he talks about in the speech how much, how excited he is about somebody else's child, the other thing that's interesting is that whereas Zechariah first uh, heard, when he first heard he was going to have a son, he responded with skepticism, but now he responds with incredible joy, overwhelming joy. Why does Zechariah have so much joy? And the question is this, for you and me at Christmas time, how can we have joy this Christmas season and beyond in our lives as well? Well, the answer to that is this, Zechariah had joy because he had a thrill of hope. He had a thrill of hope. See, hope leads to joy. The more joy you have will be depending on how much hope you have, right? So the more hope you have, the more joy you will have. And on this topic of hope, the first thing we need to see is this. Number one, the necessity of hope. The necessity of hope. Again, what is hope? Hope is the assurance of coming good. Hope is the conviction that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The opposite of that? is hopelessness. And what is hopelessness? Well, if, if hope is the assurance of coming good, hopelessness is the, the feeling that there is no confidence in the fact that good is coming. When, when you're convinced that things are not going to get better, that maybe things have peaked and it's all downhill from here. See, hope is what, what gets you out of bed in the morning. Hope is what keeps you going when things are difficult and hard. But what happens is when people lose hope, they lose the will to go on. You can even lose the will to live if you lose hope. That's why hope is absolutely necessary for life. Depression, by the way, is, is always associated with a sense of hopelessness. The number one cause of suicide is a sense of hopelessness. You know, for some people, this time of year is very hard because our culture tells us that, hey, this is the most wonderful time of the year. And what makes it wonderful is that this is the time of year when you spend time with friends and family. But if you don't have those, or let's say your relationship with your family is broken, or you've lost loved ones, and you find yourself alone, what can be really easy to feel hopeless at this time of year. And in our society as a whole, we have an epidemic of hopelessness. That's what we're experiencing, an epidemic of hopelessness. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, since 1999, suicide rates in the United States have increased in every single state. 
Every single state. In 25 out of our 50 states, the suicide rate has increased by more than 30%. And in particular, the most uh, increase, age group-wise, demographic-wise, is amongst middle-aged adults. Middle-aged adults. And the top contributing factors are isolation and a sense of hopelessness, particularly in regard to family and work. Earlier this year, you know, people were really shocked by the suicide of a very popular journalist who made his fortune traveling around the world and eating exotic food, right? This guy, it's like a dream job. And the reason it was so surprising to everyone is because this man was so successful. He had a good life. He was, he had, he was successful in his career. He was wealthy. He was famous. And uh, remember, Here's the thing, though. What is hope? Hope is the assurance of coming good, coming good. And so whereas the general public was shocked by this man's suicide and and didn't understand why someone like him would commit suicide, psychologists and experts, they looked at this case and they weren't surprised by it at all. Because even though this man was successful in, in all these areas, for a lot of people who reach that stage of life, there can be this sense that you feel like you've peaked, you've already peaked, you're, you know, we always say you're over the hill, right? Your best days are behind you, physically, vocationally, and now it's all downhill from here. And it's just a matter of time before you get pushed out and put out to pasture. And if you don't have something to hold on to, you will be absolutely lost when that happens. If what you've been hoping in and looking for, for purpose and meaning and joy and value and self-worth, if that is taken away, then you've got nothing more to look forward to. There's, in other words, no more expectation of coming good. And that is hopelessness. And that sense of hopelessness can be overwhelming and it can destroy you no matter how successful you've been in the past. Hope is a necessity for life. You can live for weeks without food. You can live for a few days without water. You can live for four minutes without oxygen, but you can't live for a second without hope. The problem is this. If your hope is coming from, from anything in this world, right? If, that, if anything in this world is what gives you a sense of what you look forward to, of coming good, eventually you will find yourself utterly hopeless because eventually, whatever that thing is, If it's from this world, you will lose it. You will lose it. Whether it's your career, it will end. If it's your abilities, they will diminish. If it's your family and friends, eventually you will be separated from them. If by nothing else, by death. See, C.S. Lewis, he famously said this. He said, do not let your happiness depend on anything you can lose. Do not let your happiness depend on something you can lose. If happiness or joy depends on having hope, as we've been talking about, where can we find that kind of hope, that level of hope that can never be lost, that can never be taken away from you? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is the source of hope. Here's Zechariah. He's a middle-aged man, right? He's over the hill, we might say. His wife is an aging woman. That means that their best days physically and vocationally are behind them. But now, at the birth of this child, they have a thrill of hope, an infusion of hope. They have something now to look forward to, which fills them with joy. And here's what's so surprising. Zechariah and Elizabeth, their source of hope is not their own child. 
This is what I find so surprising. He, he gives this big speech about somebody else's kid, right? And, and their source of hope isn't that they had a child. It's that another child is coming and their child is gonna prepare the way for that one. The source of their hope, in other words, is Jesus. In Paul's letter to the Colossians in the New Testament, he says this at the beginning of his letter, he says this. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we pray for you, since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now look at what it says there. First of all, it tells us what hope does. What hope does. It produces faith and love. It produces faith and love. These are the results that spring forth from having hope. But he also tells us where hope comes from. He tells us that hope comes from the gospel, from hearing the gospel, the word of truth. The word gospel in Greek, it's a Greek compound word, which means a joyous proclamation. A joyous proclamation. That's why the angels, you remember when they announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds out in the field, what do they say? We bring you good news of great joy. The gospel. We bring you the gospel. Good news of great joy for all people. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you, when you think about Christianity, how many of you think of it primarily as a hard task? A hard task a duty, a list of things that you need to do. You think of it primarily as self-discipline and self-denial. That's how I used to think about it. I remember being a young person thinking, I'm not sure if I wanna be a Christian. I'm not sure if I'm cut out to be a Christian because Christianity is a lot of work, man. Like it's a list of duties. It's a moral grind. And I don't know if that's what I wanna sign up for. I don't know if I'm cut out for it and I don't know if I want that because I want to enjoy my life. And my view was that Christianity is an obstacle to me enjoying my life. Well, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Are there any of you who would say, maybe not out loud, but somewhere inside, you would say, you know, if I could just get out from under Christianity, if I could just get out from underneath the church, then I would be free. Then I would be free. Let me tell you this. If you feel that way, it tells me, and it should tell you, if you view Christianity primarily as a hard task, as a moral grind, then you have fundamentally misunderstood what Christianity is all about. You haven't understood it yet. I realized that in my life when I was younger, that I thought it was one thing and I realized that I was completely wrong about how I thought about it. See, at its core, this is what Christianity is about. The gospel joyful news, good news that brings great joy. The gospel, the core message of Christianity, it is not good advice about what you need to do in order for God to accept you. The gospel is good news about what God has done in Jesus to rescue you because he loves you. Christianity isn't primarily about what you need to do for God. It's the news, the report of what has been done in the past by God for you. That news is the ultimate source of hope. There in Colossians chapter one, verse five, Paul tells us the gospel is the word of truth. And it has been, he says, 
bearing fruit and growing. So that means that the gospel isn't just a set of information, but there's a dynamic power behind it. It bears fruit. It's growing. When it comes into your life, when you embrace these facts and you put your trust in this news, this report of what Jesus did, it changes your life. It revolutionizes you from the inside out. And here in Zechariah's words, we see what the gospel is and why it is the ultimate source of hope, not just for Zechariah, but for us as well. Three things that we see. I'll just walk you through this text. The gospel is, number one, a visitation from God. This is why the gospel is good news. It is a visitation from God. The first thing Zechariah says in verse 68 at the beginning of this speech, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? Because he has visited us to redeem his people. He has visited us. Later on in verse 78, he says it again, that God in Jesus, this is a visitation from God to earth. God has visited us from on high. See, as Christians, we don't just look up to Jesus as a good person and a wise teacher. And we don't just follow Jesus trying to emulate his kindness and goodness. You know, as Christians, we do those things, but we also do one step beyond that, one huge step beyond that. We don't just look to Jesus, we don't just follow Jesus, but we worship Jesus. We worship him because we understand that the Bible tells us that Jesus was, in fact, the visitation of God to us here on earth to redeem us. The word redeem, what does that mean? It means to purchase. It means to purchase something. It means to pay a price so that there is a change of ownership. Specifically in the ancient world, this word would be used to speak of slavery. It would be used to speak of slavery. Specifically, it would be used to speak of purchasing the freedom of a slave. See, in, uh, in our country, slavery was based on race and kidnapping and things like that. But in the ancient world, most of the time, slavery was based on poverty. So you would end up poor or you would end up in debt. And so what you would do as a result of your debt, you would end up as somebody's slave, or you would end up in poverty, and the way out of poverty was to become a slave. But here's the thing, you could redeem a slave. How? By paying off their debt, or by purchasing them out of slavery from their owner, and then setting them free. And so Zechariah is telling us, this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the eternal God, the creator of the universe, come to us in human flesh to redeem us by paying our debt, by purchasing our lives from our former master to whom we were enslaved in order to set us free. See, the Bible tells us that you and I, we have a debt before God which we are unable to pay. We have sinned and fallen short, and throughout our lives, we have racked up an enormous amount of debt that we do not have the means to pay. And that debt just can't be ignored. It can't be swept under the carpet. He can't just say, never mind, because that wouldn't be justice. Somebody has to pay that price, and the Bible tells us that we don't just sin, but we are actually slaves to the sins that we do. But the good news of the gospel the reason for our hope is that Jesus came to redeem us, to pay that price, to set us free, to purchase us. This is why the opening words of the gospel of John, John tells us about Christ before Christmas, right? Here's what John says in the beginning of his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word. 
That's what John calls Jesus, the word. Here's why. Because before Jesus was called Jesus, he existed from eternity past. Before he was given that human name, when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he had existed from eternity past. And so what is John going to call him? He says the word existed, the word. He's evoking, by the way, the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And he says, in the beginning was the word. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. So who is Jesus? John says, Jesus is God. He's existed from eternity past. He created the heavens and the earth, and here's what John says. This is, you know, he drops the mic here. He says, the Word became flesh. God became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The gospel is the good news that God has come to us in Jesus to redeem us from slavery to sin, slavery to death, in order to pay the price for our debt of sin so we can be reconciled to God. That's the meaning and the purpose of Christmas. The message of Christmas, in other words, is that there is something wrong with me. There's something wrong with you that we cannot fix. Only God himself can fix this problem. But even more than that, the message of Christmas is that God loves you so much that he was glad to do that. He loves you so much that he was glad to leave the comfort of heaven, to be born as a baby, to suffer as one of us, to be rejected and scorned, and ultimately to be crucified in order to redeem you and reconcile you back to himself so you could have the hope of eternal life. So the gospel is a visitation from God to do what? He says the next thing, to save us from our enemies. In verse 69, he says, God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David to save us from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. A horn of salvation, it's the horn of an animal, speaks of the power of that animal that the animal uses to what? To fight. So the idea is that Jesus is our champion. He is our warrior who has come to fight and to win the battle that we can't win on our behalf. And who has he come to defeat? Our enemies and those who hate us. You know, one of the great themes throughout the Old Testament is that God is coming to save his people from their oppressors, from their enemies, from those who hate them. But here's the thing. There were times in the Old Testament when God allowed other nations to attack and even defeat and even oppress his people Israel. That's kind of weird, right? Because if God's whole program is to set them free from their oppressors and not let them be, you know, overcome by oppressors, well, then why did he even ordain himself that sometimes they would be overcome by other nations and be oppressed? It just, what's that all about? Well, here's why. Because God's agenda wasn't just to save them from their political opponents. It wasn't just to give them comfort. Now, oftentimes, that's what they reduced it to in their minds. They thought, God's going to save us from our enemies. God's going to make us, you know, save us from oppression. They thought it was all about political enemies and saving them for comfort. But God says, no, no, no. I'm here to do something much bigger than that. I don't just want to save your country. I don't just want to save your comfort. I want to save your souls. And so sometimes he would allow other nations to overcome them. Why? To get their attention, to get them back on their knees, to get them to turn back to him and reach out and cry out to him. See, even as Zechariah was speaking, Israel was being oppressed by the Romans. 
And one of the reasons why later on people turned away from Jesus in the end is because Jesus made it clear that he was not going to drive out the Romans, which made some people conclude that Jesus must not be the Messiah because everybody knows, as we read here, that the Messiah would come to what? Save God's people from their enemies. But Jesus did do that. It's just that he didn't save them from their political enemies. He saved them from their true enemies, their greatest enemies. They they thought their enemies were the Romans and the Gentiles. The truth is the real enemies for them and for us are the enemies of our souls, death and the devil. And Jesus came to save us from those enemies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, it tells us that Jesus defeated our ultimate enemy, which is death, the last enemy to be destroyed, which is death. In Revelation, Jesus introduces himself as the one who has defeated death, hell, and the grave. In 1 John chapter 3, it says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to save us from our enemies. And finally, the gospel was foretold for ages by God through the prophets. He says in verse 70, and Zechariah says this, he says, this was all spoken beforehand through the mouths of the holy prophets. He says in verse 72, he talks about the covenant that God made with Abraham, that promise that God told Abraham that there would come one of his descendants through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. So the idea of God coming to us to save us, it wasn't just something that dropped out of thin air at the time of Jesus. It is something that God had been talking about and promising for the entirety of human history and the entirety of the Bible. See, the Old Testament isn't just the history of Israel and some random thoughts about God. No, it's the plan. It's a narrative of God's plan to bring salvation, and it culminates in Jesus coming into the world. You know, Paul the Apostle, he says to the Romans at the beginning of that letter, he says, the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See, the source of Zechariah's hope was the gospel, the good news of what God was doing to save us. And Zechariah saw these promises being fulfilled before his very eyes, and it gave him a thrill of hope. And that leads us to our final point, which is this, the consequences of hope, the consequences of hope. Zechariah was filled with joy. That's the first consequence of having hope. It gives you joy. Without hope, you can't have joy. If you put your hope in anything else, it won't last. Eventually it will peak, it will decline, it will ultimately disappear. But when your hope is in the gospel, your joy becomes bulletproof. There is nothing that can take it away from you. There's nothing that can destroy it because your hope is fixed. It is unchanging. It is not going to fade or be taken away. Anything, the worst things that can happen in this life will only bring you closer to it. The next thing that hope gives you, the consequence of hope, is purpose. Back in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he talks about this hope that comes from the gospel, and he says this, because of this hope, I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. I love this quote from Warren Wearsby about hope. Check it out. He says this, this hope does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace, on the battlefield. It keeps us going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline. If you look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit in, the, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, you'll see that each of these things that are listed there as a fruit of the Spirit are a result of having 
hope that comes from the gospel. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that happen when you have hope. And the more you want to increase those things in your life, in your life, here's what you do. Focus all the more on the hope of the gospel and how it applies to every situation in your life. Hope is the assurance of coming good. And at at the core of Christianity is this core belief, this fundamental promise that no matter what's happening in your life today, in Jesus, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And what this hope does is that it sets you free. You know what it sets you free from? It sets you free from living for yourself. It sets you free to live for something bigger than just yourself. I'll tell you this. Do you want to be miserable? Do you want to live a small, insignificant life that doesn't matter? Let me tell you how to do that. Live for yourself. Think about yourself all the time. Try with everything you have to make yourself happy. Spend all of your resources on yourself to be fulfilled and you will be miserable and your life will be small because the only thing that you live for is yourself. So when you're gone, what remains? If you wanna be miserable, here's what you should do. Don't live your life for a great calling. Don't sacrifice for others. Live for yourself, think about yourself, Be consumed with what you need to make yourself happy and you will be miserable and your life will be small and insignificant. But when you have the hope that comes from the gospel, you know what happens? When you have the assurance of coming good, that the best is indeed yet to come because Jesus came to redeem you and save you from death and bring you into the light of life now and forever, you know what that does? It sets you free. You don't have to cling tight-fistedly to what you have. You can live open-handed and generous. You can sacrifice and give to God and to others because you know that what awaits you is better than the best that you could ever possibly experience here on earth. And therefore, you're not, your life isn't about getting your best life now and being a reservoir of things. Your life is about being a conduit. How does God want to work through me? And let me tell you guys, that is an adventure. When you join with God in that, that is the most exciting adventure. How is God going to work through me to, to bless other people, to love other people? How can I be his hands and feet? When you have the hope of the gospel, it sets you free from living with a tight fist to living open-handed because you know that the best is yet to come. And that's how Jesus lived his life. He knew that his time on earth was short and that he was here on a mission, but he also knew that when his time here on earth was over, he knew where he was going, back to the Father, back to glory, back to heaven. And because he knew that, he was able to endure the things that the Father called him to do and to do them courageously and with joy in his heart. He could face hardship. He could face trial. He could face suffering and hold nothing back because he knew what awaited him after this life was over. And because of the gospel, you and I have that same destiny. We can live this life fearlessly, and we can live courageously, we can live generously, and we can give. We can have a big life that matters and has significance. You can follow God with your life with no reservation because you have nothing to lose. The best is yet to come. So this Christmas season, I pray that you would know that hope of the gospel and that it would thrill your heart and transform the way you live, that it would cause you to surrender your life to God and to love others without reservation. May that be true in Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you for this great hope of the gospel. Lord, would we once again feel the thrill of hope 
Lord, may it fill us with joy and may it cause us to live courageously and fearlessly for your purposes, for your callings, for the good of others that you wanna do through us. Lord, enable us to see things this way. Lord, fill us with this anticipation of coming good, this assurance that the best is yet to come and let us live in light of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.